Hello, welcome to Two Bits, a production of the American Numismatic Association, hosted by Mitch Sanders and Douglas Mudd. Well, Doug, today we have a very special podcast experience. It's our first guest, and not only our first guest, but one of the most eminent numismatists of all time. So we're delighted to welcome Ken Brissett to the Two Bits podcast. Uh, now, Doug, you and Ken are uh, both at ANA headquarters in Colorado Springs, right? And I'm, and I'm in Rochester, but through the, through the magic of Zoom, we're all together. So welcome, Ken. We appreciate you being here. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's Hello. very exciting because you're our, our first uh, guest on a, on a podcast. So it's an experiment, but we figure that with somebody as eminent as yourself, uh, it should work out really well. Well, we can yes. only hope. <laughs> so uh, let, let me, I'll say a few words about uh, our first guest. Uh, Ken Brissett is a numismatist who I think needs no introduction. I'm still going to introduce you anyway. Uh, probably best known as the longtime editor and now editor emeritus of a guidebook of United States coins, uh, better known to all hobbyists as the Red Book. Ken has written so many things that his resume alone could be published in book form. And he's written not only so many things, but such a, a diversity of things, coins from uh, ancient to modern and all around the world, and of course, uh, United States. Uh, among his achievements, he was president of the ANA from 1995 to 1997. He is in the ANA Hall of Fame. He has served on the United States Assay Commission and also served on the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee. So a really nice double play there. Um, and he's done so many interesting things that we're excited to talk about. And now... He's our first guest on Two Bits. So again, once again, welcome. Thank you. I have a couple of brief Ken Brissett stories, if I can tell them here at the start of this podcast. Uh, or Doug, I'll yield to you if you have some Ken Brissett stories you want to share. Um, let's start out with, with uh, some story. One of the things that's really amazing to me with uh, Ken is that he has written about so many different things. And as I was thinking about that, I, I was wondering if, if he's actually visited all of the places he's written about as far as the coinage. Um, well, in interestingly enough, I guess, um, I have not. Um, of course, many of the places uh, I have visited, particularly throughout Europe, um, but I've never been to Asia. And, um, uh, and that's, that's one of my specialties. But, um, you know, life is, life is short. We can't do everything. I was thinking in particular of things like the the relatively new book Numisma Tourist, where there's there's a guy Howard Berlin who's traveling all over the world and actually visiting museums everywhere. But uh, I, I know that your Hawaiian book was well, your Hawaiian pamphlet was very good and and a groundbreaker for when it was issued. Well, that's a good um, one for an on-site visit. <laughs> well, uh, Hawaii just happened to be a, a special favorite of mine. And for many, many years, um, I went there on vacation every year, year after year, uh, interestingly, with uh, Bill Fieber and uh, our two families who are very close. And uh, so Hawaii is a pet, pet uh, vacation spot for me. Um, as far as the museums go, I've, I've been to museums um, throughout Europe uh, in this continent, and I've been to Mints. Various mints throughout the, 
all of these places where I visited. So, so yeah, I've been around. I'm going to pick my my favorite Ken Brissett anecdote uh, from my experience as a coin collector. And Ken, I will not be offended if you don't remember this, but probably sometime in the late 1970s, a new Red Book came out and it had a typo, a pretty obvious typo. I can't remember exactly if I saw the Red Books, I pro could probably find it again. It was something like instead of the 1978 quarter, it was listed as the 1878 quarter. So it was a pretty clear typo, but being a, a novice collector and really um, diligent, I, I wrote a letter to Whitman Publishing about the typo. And sometime later, I got a letter back from you and you and you said, thank you for pointing out the error. We will be sure to correct it. So that really uh, made my day and week and month and year when I was a young collector. And it's been a long time since that edition, but I, I still remember it. And I, I still remember that letter. So uh, as uh, one, collector's experience of, of how how kind you are and have been to other collectors to take the time to write a letter to a kid who pointed out a fairly obvious typo. So all these years later, thank you. Maybe you have it in your file somewhere. I, I expect you don't remember, <laughs> Well, of course. I, I don't remember you specifically, but I, we do <laughs> get letters like that and we do make mistakes. Those, those are oh, just sure. a, a, printer's, a printer's errors, uh, but sometimes they're very serious. Uh, like the time in just about 1971, uh, one of the editions had um, referred to a 1908 SBDB cent. Uh, now that was kind of embarrassing. Um, and uh, and those, things, those things happen. Um, Yeoman used to say, uh, don't worry too much about it because your um, people who use the Red Books will be your best editors. They'll spot those things every time and report them. And, uh, and then we get a chance to correct them. Um, usually um, Red Books, when they're printed, um, had to be done in, in batches, two or three different printing sessions. Okay. And sometimes if the error was serious enough, we would make that minor change. <clears throat> but uh, Generally, we, we never change from uh, things in the first and second and third printings just because uh, we didn't want to create confusion on collectors. Or a new collectible. <laughs> right, or, to, or, create, or create varieties, right. And I know there are, there's at least one instance of that where there are different varieties, right? It was oh, the yeah. first edition, right, that had the, the uh, different, different versions. Two different versions. And wasn't there a year where there was a, there was a page missing or something yes, or a page indeed. duplicated? Well, yeah. You, you've done your homework. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> well, actually, I, I wanted to ask you about this. It's not really numismatic, but uh, you started out in, in printing, right? I'm really interested in printing. I do it as a hobby, but you, oh, the idea, the, the, the way, the, just the notion of not only the red book for its contents, but just the way it's produced and the, and the printing. But you started out in printing, am I correct? Absolutely. Well, my, my family uh, were all printers, and my father and grandfather, and, uh, and myself. Um, I'm a journeyman printer. I went through all the stages. I, I was a printer's devil and, you know, the whole works. I, I know printing from top to bottom. And, and, and later took actual uh, college courses in such things, graphic arts and, and printing. Did you did you ever uh, play with uh, like the home printing equipment and things like that? One of the big hobbies I know in the early 1900s was 
uh, printing at home for magazines and private issues and stuff mm -hmm. like that? Well, um, I, I guess at one time I, I sort of had a dream of having, you know, all my printing equipment at home and being able to be creative about it. And now I can do it on my computer. And, and, I, and I just love that. I love sure. playing around with it because I can, um, and, and I don't have to get my hands dirty anymore. <laughs> if you know anything about printing, oh, yeah. you, you realize <laughs> the ink is not only in your blood, it's on your hands. <laughs> That's true. And and on your clothes, perhaps. Well, I, I, I really enjoy the the typesetting and yes. to typeset a paragraph, you know, it might take me an hour and a half to do and on the computer it would take me 90 seconds, but just the craft of it and the feel of it. And exactly. or, I suppose it's not surprising being into coins, you know, anything made of metal and with letters and designs on it. I feel like there's an, a, an affiliation there. So Absolutely. that's uh, just a, just an interesting sideline. Um, but should we talk about your history in the hobby? That's, uh, of, of great interest. Uh, how did you get started? Well, um, it started about 1934, um, when I was probably five or six years old. Uh, a neighbor gave me a coin. And it was an old Chinese coin, you know, one of those with a square hole in the middle. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just fascinated by that because it was unlike any other um, coin that I had ever seen. And, um, and so uh, I guess in my enthusiasm, I, I had to show that around to, to everybody. And, um, and pretty soon uh, other, another neighbor gave me a couple of coins. And, uh, and before I knew it, I was uh, you know, having, having a serious interest in these funny, funny looking coins. I have a question for you and it's probably unanswerable, but I just wonder about it. Do you think if that neighbor had not given you that coin, would you have found the hobby another way? I probably would have because um, I'm, a, I'm a depression baby and uh, we didn't have a lot of games to play back then. Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> Mother was innovative. She, she would make up games. And one of the things that she would let me take the family cookie jar where they saved their pennies and um, and I would I would lay out those pennies and sort them by different dates, and uh, that was not meaning much to me, but it was a kind of an education, and I enjoyed. <laughs> I just enjoyed playing with the pennies, so that might have been a, a, an influence. Yeah, um, but the greatest the greatest influence on on my um, becoming really really serious was. Um, in 1936, the Ovaltine Company, uh, makers of a, um, um, actually it was a, it was like a chocolate flavored drink, kind of a food supplement. Um, and they were running a um, promotion for their Little Orphan Annie program. And um, for enough of the uh, uh, labels on these cans of Ovaltine, uh, if you uh, sent them in, you would get a little packet of coins, foreign coins. Oh. And uh, they supposedly represented Little Orphan Annie's travels around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, so, of course, I had to, um, I had to get all of those. And I, and I still have them. 
They have all the promotional material. And, oh, that's oh, really cool. Yeah. So that is very cool. It's, it reminds me of something. Yeah. The first time I ever bought, bought a coin, I, the first coin I ever got was from my father. But to buy coins, I saw an ad in a comic book. And it was from it was probably from some company like Littleton. I don't know who it was, but I ordered the coins. It was for a a selection of pieces. Well, it turns out that they were world coins, and I still have them in a, in their little original packs. <laughs> how many how many coin for for each of you, how many coins were in these? Packages or in total, what does the collection look like? Oh, I think there were eight eight coins from the Lark and Annie. Okay, um, but it was the beginning, and um, it really sparked my interest, and I became quite serious after that. So, Ken, I, I had a question for you as well. Uh, yes. You've been associated with the Red Book forever, and and your name is indelibly associated with it by now. When did you get started with the Red Book? So I know you, were you there at the very start of the, of the publication? Not, no, no, not exactly. Although um, the first Red Book that I got was, was the first edition. Um, and I had a, a Blue Book before that. So um, I, I was uh, familiar with the Red Book ever since it was first published in 1946. Um, but it wasn't until about 10 years later uh, that I um, was bold enough to speak to Yeoman about a couple of mistakes that were in there. And <laughs> I knew him. I had met him before then. And um, back in those days, in the, in the early 40s, every, everybody knew everybody else. And it was not unusual to, to just have a nice conversation with someone like Yeoman. He was very personable. But... Uh, but I told I told Dick uh, about these these errors, and uh, he paid attention. And um, so I think the first time my name appeared in the book as a contributor was was 1947 or 48. Um, and um, and then the next year he asked me if um, I would like to do that again, go really really go through the book and point out things. I said I would do that, and I did. And uh, at that point, um, I asked my wife um, what I ought to charge him for doing that work. <laughs> and we had quite a conversation. She, uh, I, I said, I think I'm going to charge him $100. That's like a week's pay. And um, uh, back then, that was a week's pay <laughs> for everybody. Um, so she said, she said, no, $50, $50 would be enough. And I said, no, $50, you, you won't pay any attention to it. $100, you'll be serious. Well, I charged him $100 and actually liked the work. And uh, every year after that, uh, he wanted me to uh, do more work. So by 1958, he, um, he asked me to go to go to work for him in Racine. So I packed up uh, and moved from New Hampshire, moved on to uh, Wisconsin. And uh, as I say, the rest is history, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, so that was the kind of job that, that was a good paying job for the time and everything else to, to make you want to move. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had, 
I had to decide, though. I had to decide if I wanted to go into um, printing, the printing business, um, and uh, where I was well trained, or uh, if I wanted to do this. But I saw I could I could combine my skills as a printer, uh, you know, along with with the numismatics. And that was the deciding factor, of course. Yeah, it's amazing if you can combine the two things, you know, work and, and being yeah. good at it and the love of that work. Right. Yeah. Right. And then in the context of a, of a hobby that you were already enjoying so much. Yeah, absolutely. Enjoy yeah. it that way. So can, so can I have a question for you thinking about the Red Book? Yeah. Going back to the first edition and now thinking about 75th anniversary, it's different, but it's also the same. It's the same publication that the hobby relies on, but it's also reflective of so many things that have happened in in coinage and also in the hobby. So if you think about the difference between then and now, what do you see as the greatest similarities between the original Red Book and, and the current Red Book? What do you see as the biggest differences between the original and what we have now? Well, the greatest similarities I would attribute to uh, Yeoman himself and his philosophy and uh, why he created the book and and the and uh, the way he wanted it to be, and he's passed that on um, to me and and to others who have contributed to the book, and I'm, I'm proud to say that we've um, you know kept up with that tradition of being independent, as honest as possible about the information, and as careful as possible uh, to to present only the latest. Um, information that we can find on and facts and and um, so we've tried to keep uh, the the publication pure so to speak um, that's not always been the case with some others who have published uh, pricing information and, uh, and that meant a lot to yeoman and it's meant a lot to me over the years so I think that's that's the greatest um, similarity that I that can point to with pride as far as being different, well, the market has changed. The market and coin collecting, uh, per se, has changed over the years. Uh, it's had its ups and downs, good times and bad times. Um, and, and we've all had to uh, live with these changes. Um, I won't say that they're all good or all bad. It's just the public's um, interest in coin collecting has changed. Um, for myself, I always try to be um, uh, uh, follow follow what a, a real numismatist should be like. But I, I I take a view that there are numismatic interest in coins, and there's a coin collector mentality, which is is different. Doesn't mean one is different or superior than the other. It's just that. Uh, we're talking to two different kinds of people. Um, and throw into the mix the dealer community. And uh, you've got a whole bunch of people uh, interested in coins, but on a different level. Uh, so we have to we have to accept the hobby the way it is today and uh, work around all of those things. How would you define a numismatic interest versus a collector interest? Well, um, Collectors have an interest in coins. They like to save them. They um, they enjoy the history that's behind them. They enjoy the artwork. They enjoy uh, the values. And um, and uh, 
there's a difference, a different level when you when you realize that numismatics is a subset of archaeology. And and I know that I know that Doug, that you um, respect that and, and and honor that same tradition. Yes, archaeologists um, use the science of numismatics to um, to analyze and understand the coins that they find. And uh, I think that's an admirable thing. The American Numismatic Society leans more towards that discipline. Um, the American Numismatic Association um, caters more towards the collective community. Um, the Red Book is designed for the collective community. Um, and then dealers have their own world in which they live. And, uh, and all of us try. <laughs> Try to get along and, and enjoy what we're doing. And, and that's what makes this a very, very interesting uh, hobby. Yeah. It's got great diversity and, and there's room for all of us in there. But uh, yes, certainly. at times there's, there's questions about where certain groups are going. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well and they're constantly changing. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, nothing's constant except change, right? That's the cliche, uh, but it's true. And yeah. uh, what I what I think is so nice about the red book is that it there's something for everyone right yeah. if, i mean if you, if you want to if yeah. you there there are ways you can delve in that are not covered in the red book but they're not meant to be covered in the red book it's it's at the very least an introduction to every element of american numismatics with a lot of detail about many elements of numismatics and a, a pathway that will show you where to go for the other elements that you know, it's a it's a single volume, and it's not it, it's not going to cover everything, but it it contains some reference to all elements of the hobby. And what I most appreciate about it is that it's not just about evaluating coins; it's about understanding American coinage, the story of it, and the history of it, and how things were made, and why things were made, and and values too. But as a a one stop source for all that information i mean that's why it's still around after 75 years that's why i have it you know literally right here at hand and i do and i do all the time because if i want to find something that's the first place i'm going to go uh for a starting point and maybe for an ending point well that's good that's good to hear because that's just what it's designed to be and, and precisely why yeoman named it the guidebook not the encyclopedia, but the guidebook, and um, and we tried to fulfill that that uh, premise. So, actually, can I ask you about an, another one of your books, uh, which to me is uh, really superlative, uh, and this goes back to the early 1990s, but it's collectible American coins. Oh. And I remember once I actually asked you about this at a coin show, and uh, because it's been out of print for a while, and I think that's a real loss because. It's not, there's a little bit of information about pricing in it, but it's, it's minimal. And now it's 25 years old, but it, it, it covers all of American numismatics and it's got really nice photos and really nice descriptions. I think it's, it's the best one volume introduction to, to that story, to the story of American numismatics. So, uh, but long out of print. And I remember you told me that it, it it is likely to stay that way, and I, I felt that, that was a that was a real loss because it's such a nice volume. Well, I appreciate uh, your kind words. It, it's hard for me to um, 
pick my favorite book. <laughs> um, and and uh, but I've had fun with all of them. Everyone that I, um, every book that I've written has been uh, a learning experience for me, and um, and um, that's that's the fun of numismatics, and and many many people uh, now are getting into the habit of of writing. Mm -hmm. um, my gracious, we can find on the internet um, good material about almost any subject you'd want to pick. Uh, so lots of people are doing serious numismatic research, um, mostly in isolated general, uh, in isolated um, subjects. And um, I've always considered myself a generalist. I try to uh, cover a broad range of numismatics because I think that's important um, if you want to take this hobby uh, or this science <laughs> seriously. Uh, you need to be a generalist. Um, and that kind of surprises people who think, oh gosh, um, I ought to know everything about the United States coins and, and um, ignore everything else. Well, I, I happen to be a specialist in Chinese coins. And um, that's, that's um, kind of a surprise to some people, but um, I, don't, I don't have any particular favorites. I just love the, the science of numismatics. So you've answered a few of our questions, Ken. Is there is there anything that you'd like to to say that about collecting or your experiences, well, or about or about diving, or about diving? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did your homework, I guess. <laughs> um, well, about collecting, uh, I've long held a theory and a philosophy that uh, you should collect whatever in interests you the most. Um, for some people it's the uh, history, some people it's artistry or geography or their personal heritage. Um, there's ever uh, so many ways of, um, of finding an interest in collecting and I always tell people there are no rules. Um, you should just enjoy the hobby at your own level and do it your own way. Um, diving, well, um, that's part of archaeology, um, and uh, I was very fortunate that I had the opportunity to uh, go on a dive, a very important dive, in some of the most valuable um, recovered coins ever. I think one, I think maybe the largest uh, hoard of uh, Spanish American coins that uh, have ever been found beneath the waters. I believe so. It still is. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And uh, that was a, just a grand experience. Uh, I had to learn how, how to scuba dive. And um, how, how difficult was that to do? To, you said no diving experience before. How, how difficult was it to, to become proficient enough? It wasn't, it wasn't bad. Um, you have to be certified. Uh, and, uh, you know, take a regular training course. And um, there's nothing frightening about it. It's a lot of fun. Great hobby in itself. I don't. I, I have to say, I'm I'm getting nervous just thinking about diving. So, if you found it not frightening, that's a very different experience. <laughs> well, as I say, you have to be certified, so uh, you don't just jump in the water and and, and halt. So when 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 did this take place? Um, let me think now. 1982. I believe. Okay. Uh, 
That's maybe, not, that sounds maybe, 81, 82. Maybe, it sounds yeah, right. Right around there. I'm not exactly. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't pull the date. Right. How, how deep did you go and, and how long were you there and, and what were you able to see? Well, I was there about two weeks and uh, go with the crew of, uh, of Fisher. And um, I think it was only about 60 feet, okay. uh, which is, you know, is deep enough you have to do it right or you'll get the bends. Uh, and uh, and we had a, had a dive master to you know help us go down, and um, and so we you know we weren't just babes in the woods. The, the um, curator of the A and A and myself and, um, and and a few others, um, one archaeologist, and um, and we were allowed to examine everything. Um, see, the the problem was. Um, Mel Fisher had, uh, had said for years he was going to find this treasure and had investors who had invested with the, with the scheme. And um, when he actually found all this treasure, found where the sunken ship of torture was, a lot of people didn't believe him. So um, he uh, wanted us to, uh, wanted someone with authority to dive and, and authenticate. Uh, the material. So we had a chance to just play with barrels of, of old oh. Spanish coins and, uh, and bars of silver and gold chains and all those wonderful things. It was an experience. Were you able to personally retrieve any coins or was that oh, no. more of an automated process? No, 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 no you don't do that. Okay. <laughs> it's like it's like going to the mint and they say no there's no free samples like you know you, say, you have to get it some other way okay i've i've seen some of the old pictures and and you looked like you were having a lot of fun with it was, it was robert hogue and uh who was the editor of the ana at the time uh, uh neil harris neil harris yeah. yeah i i think a lot of people would would give their their right arm to get a chance to do that <laughs> would you doug if you had the chance would you sign up for a skydiving or it's not skydiving for uh, I've done skydiving, water diving, regular diving. Oh, you've done skydiving. Okay. Scuba diving, on the other hand, I, I probably have a problem with now. My my brother's an instructor for scuba diving in Hawaii, but but I have some lung issues. I probably wouldn't be allowed to do it now, which is unfortunate because I'd love to do it. I've always loved uh, uh, snorkeling, for example, and and I've been to some really amazing areas for coral, but never on an underwater archaeological site. I would love to have a doctor's note just, just in case anyone any, anyone ever asked me, I could say, I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have a red book at my desk, but actually uh, I'll go to a coin show to see coins, a mint or a museum, but no, only on the earth's surface. I, think. I tried, I tried uh, diving, scuba diving for a couple of years after that, um, down in the Caribbean and in Hawaii. Um, and that is fun. But, um, uh, you know, it's not one of those things that you do into your old age. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing that always got me was uh, I used to talk to the Smithsonian photographers and, and a couple of them were very adventurous uh, to the point of doing things that I consider totally nuts. I mean, I'm not too bad with closed spaces and all that, but when you get to underground caving and you have to crawl on your hands and knees or on your belly to get into a cave, I draw the line there. I don't mind walking. I don't mind getting into tight spaces. But when you have to crawl to get there, that scares me. But these guys were into underwater caving. Mm -hmm. And that's completely nuts. Yeah. 
My general rule is that I don't do activities where my primary goal is to stay alive. <laughs> and, yeah. the, and all the things you're describing fall into that category. So that's, uh, that's, that's my, my approach. One question that I, I, I think is interesting. For me, it was very important that I got interested in coins because my father was interested and I used to follow him around. And I can remember the first coin I got and it was... It was basically because I thought it was really neat. I was interested in small things anyway. I got a, a Spanish-American Quartillo with a, a llama and a, and a castle on the back. And I, maybe this is a bad story to tell, but I begged my father for weeks and he finally gave me one and it had a hole in it. I thought that was very neat. And I repaired it with a piece of tin foil and, and all that. But that, you know, I still have the coin today and it, it was my start because it gave me a connection. I was interested in history already at that age. I was about 10, 11 years old. Uh, but did you have an experience with some kind of coin that decided you towards the Chinese coins? Or well, it was that first coin that you had? It might have been that first coin that the neighbor gave me, the little Chinese coin with a, hole, with a square hole in it. Could have been that. Um, but I never... Um, Never had any family member that uh, collected coins and passed them on to me. It wasn't that, that didn't happen. <laughs> well, that's interesting because, you know, in, in my case, I was a, a diplomat son. So we moved all over the world. I, I didn't start collecting U.S. coins. I started collecting Spanish American coins and then Roman and Greek coins because we lived in Syria. How did you get interested in, in world coins and, and other coins like that? Because that's not typical for an American kid to start with? Well, it's just part of numismatics in my mind. Um, you should try to acquaint yourself with as much as you can. Okay. And, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's why. Very See, good. I, I find it so interesting to think about comparisons and connections in the sense that if, if you really want to understand American coinage, there are many ways to do that, but putting it in the context of the world's coinage a lot of things make a lot more sense once you start to think about it in that way. You know, where did where did the concept of the dollar come from, uh, or some of the designs that come from other artistic traditions, or the way that precious metal coinage was fluctuating in the 19th century? It, it just helps to make sense of all these things. Well, um, one experience I had, I, I, I do a lot of reading because I collect books also. Um, but I, I came across a book on Armenia, and our, on Armenian history, and um, it suddenly occurred to me, I don't know anything about that. I didn't learn that in school. Uh, no one ever told me anything about the Armenians. And um, the, the book was fascinating by De Morgan. And um, so I, I started researching Armenian coins. And, uh, built up a collection of over 200 of them, uh, which is quite unusual um, because you don't find a lot of collectors um, that go in that direction. But it was just uh, another pathway that I found and uh, a way to explore history and learn a lot that I didn't know previously. And that's sort of the way I bounced around with different areas of Yeah, If you have an open mind and a good eye, you never know where you're going to end up. And you're 
is the best possible proof of that with all the things that you've done. Yeah, it's a lot of fun when you can when you can go into those different areas. That, that was one of the great things uh, for me was being in different countries, seeing the different coins. It gave me an experience that was was different than the the average American kid. Yeah. You know, when I, when I did get back to the U.S., I was visiting my grandmother, and I did start doing the the stereotypical uh, collecting of I got a blue uh, one of the uh, Whitman folders that I started feeling the, the sense in, you know, I had my penny collection and, and all that. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. I pulled things out of circulation and I went to the coin shop and I saw, Oh, look, there's one that I don't have. It, it's $2. I don't know. I, don't, I can't afford that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but otherwise I, I had much the same experience of, of this seeing coins and, you know, and seeing something different and going, oh, wow, I want to learn about these. So I want to ask um, one question uh, to both of you, and I'm curious what your answers are, whether you agree. And then I have one question for Ken that uh, we'll think about um, as part of a future podcast. So are you guys ready? Yeah. Okay. My question for uh, you two as numismatic experts, what was the first United States coin. What would you consider to be the first United States coin? I, I believe it would be the 1792 half decent or half dean. Yeah, I, I would agree because that that's the first one that really circulated. That would be U.S. And, and it was authorized. I believe it was a true, uh, intended to be a true circulating coin. Because yeah. I guess technically you could say that the deem was struck slightly earlier, but it was never intended for anything at all. So it's not really a coin. You think that's true? The deem itself? Oh, well, I, I guess it never got beyond patterns. Yeah, it there just got a pattern. Three, only three yeah. known. Yeah. yeah. So, you, so you'd both consider the, the half deem to be a, a circulating coin. Yeah. I mean, there are many examples that are circulated. Some were given out as VIP gifts, but you can put it squarely in the realm of this is a circulating American coin. Absolutely, because okay. they did spend them and, and they were intended that way. Now, if you want a side story on that coin, sure. and how long I've been collecting, um, I owned one at one time. It came from BMAX Mel for $100. Huh. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and it was a nice one. Nice, very fine. Nice, very fine. I owned it for many years. Um, well, I was thinking when I asked that question, maybe you guys would disagree and it would be uh, like a, numis a numismatic uh, battle of sorts. You know, like, you know, I think I think it's a Fujio scent. I think it's a chain scent. And then there would be some kind of uh, You'd have fireworks. to put it in different terms. If you say U.S. Oh, coin. You said, you're right. You said United States. <laughs> yeah, if you if you went into first American coin, yeah. now we might have some differences. Okay, we'll take it there. I so I was. <laughs> let's go there then. What what was the first American coin? See, then you get now, into questions. Now we now we would start debating of the word America in American. Right. Um, you know, North America, South America, Central America. Um, see, we could we could probably. 
dangerous for a while. Yeah, you got Santo Domingo, the four Maravide types, or first, if you want to go for the first coin that was uh, actually made and circulated in this country, um, I mean, in what is now the United States of America, um, I would go with the Massachusetts silver coins of 1652. Yeah, and I would have to agree with that as well. Uh, because I think part of the definition is it has to be made in the country you're, you're talking about, even if it's not the United States, it's, it's part of uh, America. Yeah. And I would, if, if the Spanish had struck coins in St. Augustine, I might argue that, they, that that would be the first, but they did not, that anybody's aware of. Yeah. So beyond that, you, you could go to, the, to Bermuda but that isn't technically correct. So yeah, like, I think you are left I'm with thinking, that. Yeah, like basically what I think of is the red book definition, which is territory that was or would become part of the United States. And so the, you've got Massachusetts. That's pretty clearly qualifies. Okay, well, a, a little more fire discussion fireworks there compared to my first question where you guys yeah. really, <laughs> really quickly. Um, actually, you know what? I have I have another one. It's, I'm I'm, tr I'm trying I'm trying to get some kind of a debate, but you keep agreeing. So <laughs> let me so let me let me try this. What do you think is the most artistically appealing American coin? Let's say in the Red Book. What's the most attractive from an artistic aesthetic perspective American coin? No, I don't think we're going to disagree on this. Uh, we're going to go with Augustus St. I, I mean, yeah, if you have the, the ultra high relief or extremely high relief, Augustus St. God, it's, it's hard to compete with that. There are some other coins. If, if you're going to go with a, a circulating coin, I, I really don't like the flat versions of them, but the high relief is still a major contender. It's got to be the top two for certain because otherwise it's the the perhaps the walking liberty uh either half is very nice but i mean there's some there's some recent coins that are quite beautiful with the bullion series but do, do you both agree about the saint gaudens it sounds like I still haven't provoked disagreement between you two. Maybe if we go further down well, from number one, but do you both well, agree? If you want to go down to a, a different level, a different, different appreciation, I happen to like the, what you call the Buffalo Nickel. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is so American in every respect and so well-crafted. Um, I, I almost, this is a true story. Now, I almost cried when I read in the, in the news that uh, the Buffalo Nickel was going to be replaced by one with a picture of President oh. uh, Because I was a collector at that time, 1938. Yeah. Uh, it meant something to me. And I thought, this, this is a work by, by James Earl Frazier. And, uh, and I respected his work at that even at that age. Um, uh, and I was quite young. Then. But anyway. So is that, that yeah, it, it's interesting you say that because I, I constantly have an argument with Rod, Rod Gillis, who works here at education because he, he, he despises the, the Buffalo nickel design and it is, it is <laughs> one of my wow. favorites. It would be, 
in my top five for U.S. coins as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I've recently noticed some of the some of the silver eagles, uh, mm-hmm. some of the liberties that have been produced in bullion coins recently are quite interesting. I like, but I'm not. One of the criteria for me is the high relief, and you know, high relief really uh, has a a value, artistic value, all its own. That's hard to emulate with a much flatter strike. That, that's why I, I gravitate towards the Saint Guns. Mm-hmm. That's why I gravitate to coins like the Buffalo Nickel um, and Greek coins, ancient coins oh. in particular, because I agree very much with. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt in his conversations with Augustus St. Guns, uh, you know, why can't we, why can't we as the greatest nation on earth, he was speaking in 1904 or five, yeah. uh, produce coins that have this kind of beauty and impression and strength to them. And Augustus St. Guns said, well, we can, you just have to get through the bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> Let me quickly ask you my, my final question, uh, which is, um, imagine that I come to you and I say, I, I know someone, I want to try to get them into coin collecting. And I ask you, what three coins from the Red Book would you recommend I give to someone to spark an interest in collecting? And then whatever you say in your response, Doug and I can do a podcast about those three coins. So what, what coins would you consider most appropriate for that circumstance? Well, uh, since we just... I've just revealed that the Buffalo Nickel is one of my favorites. I would say that, although to be technically accurate, that's a bison on there, not a buffalo. But, <laughs> but was it Black Diamond though? <laughs> well, we don't know that. Uh, so I would pick that. Um, I would uh, also choose uh, Lincoln Cent, uh, probably one of the older wheat wheat cents, because you'd have more to talk about there. And, uh, and because um, Abraham Lincoln is, is sort of a popular favorite among everybody. Um, for a third one, I would go with the, what you call the mercury dime. Mm-hmm. Um, because with that coin, uh, you, can, you can tell a lot of history um, by explaining about the process on the reverse and the head of, what do they call it? Mercury, I don't think it's really Mercury, I think it's Liberty. But um, I would go with those coins as being um, coins that are available, that are, that are commonplace, and uh, something that one can learn a bit of history and artistry from. Thank you very much, Ken, for being here uh, on the podcast. I know everyone will enjoy it, and, and Doug and I have, uh, so we, we really appreciate everything you've done for the hobby and, and your time today. Yeah, thank you very much, Ken. It's been a great show. Well, this has been fun.